Have you ever wished that you had a direct line to your pediatrician to ask all the questions that constantly crop up while parenting? We sure have. That's why we launched the Bites of Health podcast. Every morning, we'll answer a commonly asked pediatric question in five minutes or less. You can tune in while you're making your second cup of coffee or from the school drop-off line. So be sure to tune in to Bites of Health, streaming now. Would you like to relax or fall asleep while learning about history? If so, then try my podcast, Calm History. You'll learn all about famous explorers, inventions, civilizations, ancient wonders, and even the Titanic. Just search your podcast player for Calm History or go to calmhistory.com. Welcome to part two of my interview with adoption and MPE expert, Leslie Pate McKinnon. She is a well-known, well-respected therapist in these communities. Her story has been featured in multiple documentaries. MPE is misattributed parentage experience. This is what the experience is when you find out that you were adopted later in life. She is an expert and is helping us talk through this very complex issue of adoption and reconnection, attachment and attraction. This is an episode that I very much hope many therapists listen to. I hope this gets shared in therapist and healing communities. This is information that certainly every therapist needs. And if adoption has touched your life, this can be a very powerful, very grown up episode where we do not sugarcoat the issues that surround this complex issue and the delicacy and the intimacy of the adoption experience. This will definitely be a strange episode to jump into on part two if you haven't had part one. So if you haven't listened to part one, I encourage you to stop now, go find it. It's the previous episode and listen to that first. On to part two of the interview. Here is Leslie Pate McKinnon. I had a father once that came in to see me, an adoptive dad. His wife had passed away a few months before from cancer, and he wanted to come in and interview me and see if I would be right for his teenage daughter. And when he told me what had happened, I said, oh, she's lost two mothers. And he looked at me like, what? He said, what do you mean? And I said, well, she lost because she's adopted her first mother, and now she's lost her mother mother. Um, that's tough for a 15-year-old. And he said, well, I don't think there's anything about the first mother, but yeah, she was close to her mom, and I, I know this hurts. And I said, do me a favor. Go home and ask her if she ever thinks about adoption. And he did. And she said, well, every day, duh, dad. <laughs> Good for her. <laughs> but it takes kids 
often until adulthood. They don't want to hurt their parents. They don't even want to search until their parents are deceased Mm -hmm. because the fear of hurting them, and it is the fear of being rejected in some way themselves. Yes. Like if I act like I want them more, it's not either, here we go again, black or white. Yes. Both and. There's never too many people to love you. Is there? No. No. So if you meet and have a good reunion with a birth family, and you don't always, but if you do, wow, you just got a whole nother group of people that love you. And you still have your adoptive family because they're your parents. They're your parents. They're your family. You have all of your memories connected to them. Yes. It's all of their experience. Yes. It's very different. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I want to take this opportunity too to talk a little bit about my adoptive history, because Mm -hmm. I think it's an outlier for how we think about it. And in this modern era of so many blended families, I think we're having more and more and more um, older type adoptions. So when my biological father left when I was in early elementary school, Mm -hmm. he kind of went in and out for a few years till I was about 10. And then I just never saw him again. And I was super bonded to him. My, my younger siblings were not. My, my mother, I believe, is a sociopath. So my, my father was warmer to mm-hmm. me as a child mm-hmm. until he disappeared. So in an emotional way, I'm a highly sensitive person, I was more connected to him right. than to her. And then he disappeared. Yeah. At that time, my mother was dating and the person that she married he was a known pedophile and she, she married him. And part of the grooming and part of the manipulation was him asking me at a point that, that in a very loving way, he was a very sweet, very kind, very, as a lot of pedophiles are, they're very engaging. They absolutely know how to make a child feel safe and important. He showed up wanting to go on bike rides with me and coming to school and seeing me get awards and for a child that has that wound, I, I mean, I, I feel like when I look back at my life, I had like a glowing neon light that went, hey, predators, you, you, you could come on in. And he saw that light. Absolutely. Part of that grooming was he and my mother at a point saying how much he would like to adopt us. So at a, at a Christmas when I was 13, I wrote him a letter saying like, will, will you? So I asked my own abuser to adopt me. The amount of manipulation in a moment like that, it's also true that they didn't check out his history. In the very same, in Louisiana, we have parishes. We don't have counties. And in the very same parish that he had had a divorce, that he had had psychological evaluation in the late 80s where they connect your genitals to electrodes. That's how they used to do it to find out if you were sexually turned on by children. And he was. Later in my life, I... I read that psychological report. The DA's office allowed me to. Mm-hmm. So I got to see that. And in the very same parish where those papers were filed, it said very clearly he was a sexual predator and should not be alone with children under 12. And yeah. he came into our lives when I was 10. Yep. My sibling was seven. Yep. And then five. Yep. And he abused all of us. And so, yep. I, so I had to know at 14 that my biological father was tracked down and he had to consciously sign me away. Oh, wow. I didn't even think of that piece, but of course he did. Yes. Mm-hmm. So there are all these layers 
to adoption. I also, I've been married three times. Mm-hmm. I had a child that I very much felt like was my own. She wasn't biologically mine. She was my first husband's. And when I divorced him, he and his mother didn't see really a value in me staying in her life. And I, I loved her like my own. Oh. So realizing the powerlessness of being in that position. And I think we're at a time where highly sensitive people listen to this show. And, and I've never talked about the highly sensitive step parent and attachment oh. and, and how we, we absolutely can, can love someone so fully and deeply and then have that wound of them being taken away for ourselves as the adult and for that child. Yes. So in terms of attachment, and it, I think there's adoption sort of of the heart, and then there's adoption in terms of paperwork. Exactly. And we have trauma wounds around all of that. All of that. I, I, I'm just relating to you because um, in my life, my father was married four times, but his second wife, not my mother, really became my mother because my mother bolted at the time of the divorce and I didn't see her for years. And that second mother was incredible in my life. I adored her. And later he divorced her and I was not allowed contact. And it broke my heart. She was the most positive person in my life. My father was an alcoholic. My mother had left. And here was this woman I could not get in touch with. Now, of course, I did when I was about 20. But when I was a kid, I did what my parents told me. So, yeah, those are huge. And so think about that child again in a divorce. I tell people, and I bet you do too, all the time, don't be dissing the other parent. Oh, yeah. Because your child is half of that person. And when you say negative things about them, you're saying negative things about your child. And I always say, you know, and don't feel the need to unload all the reasons of your divorce. It's not their business. When they're 25, they may ask you. And depending on what they were, you may tell them. Mm -hmm. Okay. But don't do that to a child. Yes. And again and again, the... Marital partners like, well, I'm done. So, so are you. <laughs> That's awful to do. It is awful. It so, is. yeah, I don't think we know enough about attachment in our, our general, just how we relate as human beings. Yeah. I'm mm-hmm. often saying it's part of why I do the podcast uh-huh. that we, it, it really is crazy. It is insanity that we have known some basics about psychology and relating and attachment and safety and security. What kind of grows up a secure human being? We really do know that psychology. We don't practice it. Yeah. yeah. We don't confront it. We we don't encourage it enough. And, and I think a lot of that is why our depression rates in, in youth, our suicide rates are skyrocketing Exactly. While they're going down in almost every other country in America, they're skyrocketing. So we're yeah. doing some things in yes. a really, really wrong way. And it takes so much courage and so much putting that reactive part of the ego that just goes, I don't want to hear that. Or no, 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 this contradicts yeah. the story I've always told about myself. It really takes maturing beyond that response to be able to take in new information and new information that hurts sometimes. To be able to do what's best for you and what's best for a child. And one thing I hear a lot when, especially if I'm directing parents to some of these 
Facebook groups where adult now adoptees will give you tips on what to do with your child and how to talk to them and so forth. And the same thing with donor conceived. They'll come back to me and say, oh, they're just a bunch of angry people. And I said, did you stay there long enough to find out what they're angry about? Because guess what? You're right. Those are the angry ones that came forward. The ones that are, we call it, still in the fog, that don't have not connected what, why these issues they're dealing with are dealing with from the time of birth. They're not angry. They're, they're out there, you know, die, 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 die. Adoptees tend to come out of the fog around 40 years of age. And yeah, the first stage is rage. Okay. And that's when they hop on all these Facebook groups. Well, because it's grief. They have, they, they have to grieve the reality. I know I had to grieve that I, I've often put it that I fell through the cracks, that the judge didn't look up if he was safe or not. He had had a peeping Tom arrest. That should have been some kind of red flag. They didn't do a background check. They didn't take the children aside separately. My memories were repressed. My sisters knew they were being abused. Had anyone asked some questions, that adoption would not have happened. You know, exactly. so, so the anger is not just I'm, I'm angry because one person gave me up. It, it really is a systematic, you know, if a lawyer is involved, that lawyer participated. And this is one of these human things that I think it's really hard for people to understand and really know, especially if they haven't gone sort of a similar route that I have. Everything about my life and professionalism is human relating and emotions and dealing with things. So if you're not really in that world, I understand that it's, it's hard to sort of know this, but we have to deal with these emotions. And sometimes you can do everything exactly right. Well, of course. And the rightness of the process doesn't mean that a human's not going to have the whole range of emotional response. So mature parents are, are where it's at. We have to mature those parts so that the parents can have enough maturity to not take it personally. Not take it personally. And allow those children, whether they're small, young, or older, to go through those feelings and not take a how dare you shaming response or a victim-y response of, but I but I did so but much to try to get you. Yes, I aren't you grateful? You? Oh, yes, God, because there can be both. There can be <laughs> gratitude for it. Thank you for giving me my life and for wanting me. Right. And there can be this whole entire range of emotions. And the oh. thing about emotions is we never stay in one emotion. If we actually, as a society, start realizing if we deal with these emotions, we can move through them and then they change. Yeah. And I tell parents all the time how it usually comes up is around reunion, Nikki. Um, they're little child, because I try to open little bitties adoptions if they're closed. If, and I start telling the parents what I've told you, it's so much better for your child. And I'm here and I'll help you and I'll guide this. I know you're frightened. Everybody is. It's okay. Mm -hmm. But one of the things I say to parents, even if your child is older, do not give them a hard time yeah. about seeking out reunion, please. It may go terribly. Yep. It may go beautifully, but on either way it goes, if you are supporting them by saying things like, well, you know, I think I'd be curious too. Yeah. yeah, I think I've always wanted to thank your mother, you know, something 
then the child can move forward and can share with you what did happen or the adult in their reunion. If you shut them down and give them the idea that's not a good idea to go after that, then they'll go after it anyway, trust me. And then they'll have to keep it secret for you. And you know what secrets do. Then they're going to keep more and more distant. And they're not going to tell you, what if their reunion was awful? I always say that because adoptive parents go, oh, that would be okay. (laughs) (laughs) But if it's awful, they need you. Yeah. It's great they need you. You're their parents. Don't make it. It's not a threat. Yeah, Leah, I think it has to be seen as like, it's not a threat. It is absolutely a normal desire. And your role there is to support it, not to let your own insecurity thwart the process. Would you like to relax or fall asleep while learning about pivotal moments in history? If so, then try my new podcast, Calm History. It's a time machine of tranquility filled with immersive and fascinating stories from history. Prior episodes include The Pilgrims, Marco Polo, Henry Ford, Joan of Arc, Jackie Robinson, Klondike Gold Rush, Ancient Greek Olympics, Easter Island, and the Great Pyramid of Giza. There's also a six-part series about the Titanic. Just search your podcast player for Calm History or go to calmhistory.com. Right, right. The woman I spoke to yesterday, this was so funny when she finally, she'd asked her parents all her life, was she adopted? Am I adopted? No, 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 no. Anyway, 35, 6, she found out she was adopted. And she has since talked to her parents about why that happened that she didn't know. But anyway, the final word from her dad was, now you don't need to go out and tell everybody. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a message of shame. Yes. And yes. we don't want to put that on a kid. Yes. What's that shame about? They didn't do anything. That's the people behind them who made some botch up. So however they did it, but don't put shame on a kid for being. Mm-mm. It's that element that I think still runs through our society from the 50s of just yeah. saving face and putting forth this image and so anything that threatens the image of I had the ideal family, I think that there's still an element of that for a lot of people right. instead of being willing to show what's real. It takes courage. It takes vulnerability. Well, and I'll give you an example of that. Of course, when I came out telling my tawdry secrets, it was like it was out there. And again, like A&D, it helped my clients. I knew what they were going through. I knew all sides of the adoption family. And so I I had colleagues who said, ooh, you let them know about that? I said, well, I don't hand them a pamphlet, but I'm in a book. I'm in a documentary. You know, they've come to me for a reason. But um, I have street cred now. I've lived (laughs) through it, okay? And I think that is really important when my teenage son that I raised, okay, did everything right. No, I didn't. Ha ha ha. Mm-hmm. Who can do everything right? He ended up in an adolescent treatment center. 
And I was already programmed, I do not keep secrets. So when I would talk to parents about making that decision or where they were, I say, listen, that was the hardest decision I ever made. My son was there three months and wrote us a letter saying, thank you. Why didn't you send me here when I was younger? Yeah. But that, again, made people more able to relate to me as they can in AA. You know what? It's like you want to know that people really feel what you're talking about. Authenticity is its own healer. And I think for therapists, we have such a conflict there because the old teachings, I find it quite ridiculous at this point in my career that we expect people to show up to someone who just has letters behind their name and spill their guts. That's not natural. That's not human. That's not how trust develops amongst people. So I find it to be a real blind spot in our profession. And when people like you or I Mm-hmm. get loud with our stories. Right. That's still the fear. I still have moments of feeling my inner child. Like, are you really going to say this out loud? What are your colleagues going to think? How much pushback is this going to get? Exactly. And yet I always get more of a wave of, thank you for being real. I needed that. I, I think we are tribal creatures. I think we have learned since the beginning of time through the showing of ourselves, through the sharing of our human stories. And there's something about maybe I'll use, I'll make up a word, the clinicalization of everything that as an accidental side effect becomes almost anti-human. Right. right. So I think we're hungry for that. And so I think that's why you are a magnetic person. I think, I think that's why people are even listening to this show right now. And I want to even make this episode a little bit more uncomfortable because why not? Let's go there. (laughs) And I know that this will make people uncomfortable. Nobody wants to listen to this. Nobody wants to hear it. Nobody wants to deal with this reality, but this is a real thing. And I know that there are people out now, out there right now listening, or there are people listening that know people that need to hear this. And so we're going to do it and we're going to talk about this. And the way that I first learned about GSA Oh, yes. Okay. And, and we'll define what that is in a moment. Yes. Was many, many years ago in my career, someone reached out to me. There's a very large, I think it's right outside of Dallas. When I was in Houston, there's a very large adoption center that's been operating, oh, yeah. I believe, since the 50s. <laughs> All right. If not before. And, and what started happening as people wanted to reunite was these adoption centers started requiring people to talk with a therapist first about certain issues, like really trying to be very responsible um, and and actually get people help. And one of the things when someone reached out to me and said, I need a therapist to clear me before they'll let me reunite with my mom, who also wants to reunite with me. And one of those things was GSA. And that is called genetic sexual attraction. Right. And can you explain what that is, why that is? I'll do my best. Thank you, ma'am. In a short amount of time. Genetic sexual attraction is when two people who did not grow up with each other, mother and child, brother and sister, father and child, um, during the reunion become intensely, intensely, I can't say that word enough, attracted to one another And it feels very sexual. It's like, wait a minute, what's going on here? And 
I am right with you. Um, People need to be prepared for this. It happens more often than we ever thought because you want to talk about shame. People who experience this do not want to talk about it. I have several clients I'm seeing right now, father and daughter, uh, woman and half sister, and they have, and, and guess what? Sometimes these attractions occur like the woman and her half sister. Neither one of them are gay. Okay. So how do you explain that? I think it's one of the most confusing things that, that a human being can feel and, and, and such an isolating, right. shame-based thing. I've never heard anyone else talk about it publicly other than you. Oh, well, we need to be talking about it a whole lot because what I want to say to you is with this third-party reproduction, with these donor eggs, donor sperm, donor embryos, they are keeping no track of anything, and there are hundreds of births coming from the same human being. Do you know what that's going to bring? Because you, you, you can meet somebody and be so attracted to them and have no idea that you're related to them. Mm. And this has happened quite a few times where people have married, and it's a tragic, tragic outcome, 100% of the of my experience, 100%. Um, you didn't grow up together. So the incest taboo that comes when you're growing up in the same family never got created. And I think we're going to finally find out in, I think, the next couple of years, what exactly is going on in terms of chemicals, DNA, okay. because something is getting light it up there. Reunion in and of itself is the most intense thing that ever happened in my life other than the birth of my children. And they're, I got to tell you, they're on a close parallel because so many endorphins get, you're just like higher in a kite. My therapist at the time said, do you have any history of manic depression? If I shoot it through the inner child lens to finally have this parent, like come back and show interest that has got to feel you know, like doing, like doing a drug. And we know that about when we fall in love in a very healthy way, it's like doing a drug. There's a stage of that, that is like doing a drug. So I think it's like a tripwire, like that it's like something gets, gets tripped. And then when you add shame, you know, there's so much about our, our natural healthy sexual attraction that walks a line of it's good, but it's bad. Like it's good and it's naughty uh-huh. and it's wrong. Uh-huh. It's naughty and nasty and yeah, but it's good and it's yeah. yeah, and I and I like it. Like you know, like so I I think we don't talk about that duality in society that we ha- really have this part of us that likes something that feels good, but it feels bad and it's good uh-huh. and it's bad and and so I think when when we have a reunion, I think a lot of that is at play. And right. then you add the parent maybe wanting to save the child or show up for the child because they recognize that they abandoned them. They're in they distress. Left them. Mm-hmm. And then that child wanting that. I mean, what a what a sort of witch's brew of feelings to have happen. And then you add the isolation of most of the time no one around you is in a similar experience, so it's already isolating. How do you talk about that? If therapists don't know about this, it might not even feel like a safe place to talk about in therapy. Yep. So and I don't think most 
therapist, unless they're in my field, do know about it. You do because you were working with Edna Gladney um, that's outside of Houston. But yeah, yeah. And thank heavens, every therapist needs to know about this. The only place I've ever seen it, Nikki, is on a couple of very tawdry uh, talk shows Okay. And the people are made fun of. Dr. Phil. I did saw it. one on Dr. Phil. Oh, that way. And, and the mother and was just absolutely broken. I wanted to hug her so. Oh. Much. And you could see the confusion. And he did not know how to walk them through that. I thought that was one right. of the poorest things I've ever seen him do. Uh, yeah, it was absolutely heartbreaking. A few of them. She was so shamed on that stage. And and to not have the framework of being able to understand it so that that shame can be released so that exactly. something healthy can be exactly. grown from it. Well, and here's another uh, disclosure. I remember when my children, the ones I raised were infants. Uh, one day I was changing my son's diapers and I looked at my husband and I said, you know, I would never do anything, but I understand how parents do get into sexually abusing even an infant. I said, I'm mesmerized by his little, you know, genitals. He's so cute. I love him. And I love that too. That I didn't tell anybody that until I got to working with GSA. And I said, that was a normal mother feeling of just loving the whole of him. And I could see how somebody that wasn't on their toes would have behaved differently. Okay. Emotional boundaries, emotion. And this is the stuff that no one wants to say out loud about the human condition. A lot of this hits some Freudian stuff for me, you know, and so many people just make fun of Freud, but Freud was so brilliant for, for his time and what he figured out we are always sexual beings. That's something that humans don't like dealing with either. From the moment we're conceived and we're born, we are sexual beings. That's why we will see small children masturbate and they're exploring their bodies. It feels good. Yeah. And we don't, we don't like acknowledging that as a society. We don't like acknowledging that as parents. What an uncomfortable thought. Um, Right. So all of this has the potential to get so messy that this is why we're doing this episode. So anyone who feels a, a sense of this or, or has that feeling, what would you advise that they say to themselves? What would you, where would you advise that, that, that they go? If it's not a, a fleeting feeling, if it's something that starts to stick and build, what do you advise? Right. Well, I definitely advise don't act on it. Don't act on it. Everything in your being is going to tell you to act on it, but don't act on it because you cannot believe what will befall you afterwards. So that's my first thing is like pause and again, get educated. There is a website. It's a private group online for genetic sexual attraction. And I think they ask a $25 fee to join because they don't want just lurkers. Yes. Yeah. That's how it's good. That's behind a paywall. Right. And um, there is more in print about it now than there ever has been. There are very few therapists and I wouldn't necessarily call me specializing in it, but 
I deal with it in the daily work and I'm willing to talk about it. So that's ended up with me specializing in it because I'll talk to people about it. Uh, And you really need to educate yourself so that you don't act on it. Here's the story I tell, and I'll make it really fast, and it's awful. And I tell it at the end of my presentations about genetic sexual attraction. A young girl adopted, found her birth parents when she was about 18. And as teenagers often do, she moved in with them. That happens all the time with teenagers. Don't always make good decisions, but hey. Um, And her adoptive parents were trying to support her in every way they could. And they said, okay, well, believe it or not, her birth parents had gone on and married. So she had both of her birth parents right there in that one house. And their marriage was already almost over. But her moving in, that kind of killed it completely. She and the birth father were struck terribly with genetic sexual attraction. And if you could see them, they look alike. And that's part of it. They look alike. They have the same interests. They have the same, you know, he likes to read. He likes to play tennis. All the things I like, which we think is love. It's intoxicating. Yes. Long story short, they ended up getting married. Had to leave the state of North Carolina because it wasn't legal. It's called incest. And they got married. And I want you to know that her adoptive parents stood up with them. This is all over the news. Anyway, had a baby. And when the baby was a little less than a year old, their marriage wasn't going well. And the girl decided to go back home to her adoptive family and take the baby. But before she could, the husband who was distraught over her leaving came and shot her and shot the baby and shot himself. So I want to emphasize, do everything you can to not act on these feelings. If you have acted on them, because most people do when they have a few too many drinks, if you have acted on them, stop. Yeah. Do everything in your power to stop because uh, more actions going to give you more to have to work out of. Um, so, so feelings are to show you something about what's going on and give you an opportunity to be very intentional about the direction that you need to take that in. And when we don't deal with those feelings and keep burying them and burying them and burying them, you're right. And then hang out with some alcohol. What a potential mess. Yeah. I've worked with a a birth mother who was an alcoholic. And after her son found her as an adult, he was an alcoholic. And so of course they both did some drinking together and guess what happened next. And that happens with people who don't have genetic sexual attraction, but they did, they did. They both, you know, owned it. Um, It's just, it's, it's like a tragedy. It's like a Shakespeare tragedy. It is like a Shakespearean tragedy that I think that is the ideal way to describe it. And it's, it's avoidable. It is. When we know how to hold space for ourselves. And no, I think most people don't know the difference between feeling something and behaving. You right. know, so much is 
there's so much information in our feelings when we don't automatically shame them and try to dismiss them. Mm-hmm. Most things get problematic, not really at the feeling stage. Right. They get problematic when you act. That's you right. Know? So yeah. it really is having, I'm a boundaries teacher. I teach boundaries every October. And what I tell people is we mostly need emotional boundaries. We think boundaries are wagging fingers at other people and telling them what the line is. That's no, it's mostly figuring out what you need for you and being able to have emotional boundaries for you right? that are respecting of where you are, what kind of life you really want to have, what, you, what kind of life you really deserve. And there are certain lines as human beings that we have to know that it's detrimental if we cross them, right. no matter what our feelings are saying. Right. In the earliest days of my reunion with one of my sons, I visited at his house. And I give this example to people all the time because it was genetic attraction. I kind of wish we'd take sexual out of it because that makes it, you know, that more. Yeah, it makes it icky. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but it is, it's literally genetic attraction. And I was I couldn't sleep. I was so excited. I'd only met him a few weeks before. It was my first time at his house. And I woke up early and I was laying on his sofa reading the funny paper. And he kept walking back and forth by the doorway. And I thought, what's he doing? And finally he stopped and he said, I swear, I don't, I think I have to say this out loud to get rid of it. And I said, what? And he said, I want to crawl up in your lap and have you read me the funnies. Of course, the inner child. And I said, oh, sweetie. Now, we didn't do that. I know some dyads who have done that and kept very good boundaries. But, you know, uh, I did send him little storybooks for the first 10 years of our reunion that I didn't get to send him when he was a child. So that's the way we acted on it. But we ended up just sitting together And there's a lot of feeling of wanting to touch. And so our thighs and our arms touched. And that's as far as it went. But that's genetic attraction. Come on, what 36-year-old man wants to sit in my lap and have me read him the funnies? (laughs) Um, The one I relinquished, that's who. So, yeah. It's and it's and it's strong. And I'm so glad I didn't have the whole nine yards. I'm sure it would make me a good teacher, but I had enough of it to know it's real. It's real. Well, the listeners of the show can't see me right now, but I'm tearing up. I am so grateful to you for being willing to come and talk to me about this. I know this is going to be a hard one for people, but I think it's it's a real powerful one. Good. And if there's just one person out there, that's what will get me choked up. Yeah. If there's just one person out there that needed to hear this today, then this show was for you. Yes. You know, for those of you who have a hard time with this show, I am a teacher and I am a believer of this. Those conflict, contrast points where as human beings, we, we have friction Something makes us uncomfortable. It's so easy to go, ew, no, uh, and shut down and just disappear, go away, block it. Those really are the points where if we sit with ourselves and go, what is it about this that makes me so uncomfortable? Mm -hmm. What is it about this that can give me something that I can take forward? As human beings, I think now more than ever on this topic and all the topics out there, We are really being asked, for those of us that are going to keep our sanity through the modern age, 
we are really being challenged to be able to let go of the way that we think things are supposed to be, the ideals, and start lifting the veils of disillusionment to start seeing, well, what really is? And how do I deal with what really is? And this is something that is very real for so many people in our population. Thank you so much for helping me give voice to it. You are welcome. And I hope your audience tells their friends who have donor conceived children about this because we're getting ready to have an explosion of people. And those people need to know, I want them to make a DNA test part of your marriage license. (laughs) Um, So you're certain you're not marrying, you know, someone very close Um, to you. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I thank you for the opportunity. I get teary too, but educating one person is worth it. When I started this 25 or 30 years ago, I thought, I don't think anything's changing, but I'm seeing it change. It's just so incrementally slow, but it's changing. And so I, was, I think we're part of that too. Yeah. Because it yeah. is scary to talk about this stuff. Sure. It's, not, it's not the easiest thing to do. And so I'm, I'm proud of both of us, actually. <laughs> and anybody else that's willing to address such hard things. So Thank you so much. Thank you for what you do for your clients and clients we have in common and and just light and love, Leslie. Yeah, it's been a delight. Thank you. Thank you for listening all the way to the end of our part two interview with Leslie. I'm extremely appreciative of her candor and her big heart and her unapologetic honesty I hope there's something in this episode for you or for someone you love and care about that helps you deal with what is, that helps you ground yourself in the realities so that you can take the very best care of yourself and your loved ones. Thank you for being brave. Thank you for being willing and open. And thank you as always for listening. Just by listening, you support us here on the show. I hope there's something in this episode that helps you very much take care of yourself and your loved ones. There's a reason why we call it growing pains. Sometimes the growth is uncomfortable. If there was anything uncomfortable for you in this interview series, I hope that you sit with that, take what serves you, and leave the rest, just like always. Leslie's email is in the show notes. If you would like to reach out to her at lesliepatemckinnon at gmail.com. I'm an emotional badass, you're an emotional badass, and together we are where Moxie meets Mindful. Light and love, and I'll be right here for the next episode. See you soon. Bye-bye. Would you like to relax or fall asleep while learning about history? If so, then try my podcast, Calm History. You'll learn all about famous explorers, inventions, civilizations, ancient wonders, and even the Titanic. 
Just search your podcast player for Calm History or go to calmhistory.com.